for the rest of us, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to make a statement, a couple of statements, and if you would just tell me if it's good or bad. Okay? Is this good or bad? Christ died. Let's start by saying bad. Christ died. We're going to look at the death of Christ today and the weeks ahead, and it is anything but good. I know where the rest of you are. You're overachievers. But let's stop first and consider the reality that Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised King, Christ died horrifically bad is the response. Terribly bad is the response because suffering and death are bad. They're not good. Suffering and death are a result of the fall. Consequence, suffering and death, I have to say it again, are bad. This past week, it was my mom's birthday. My mom went to heaven about 12 years ago. And the night before her birthday, I sat in the basement and looked at pictures. I had occasion to be by myself in my office, and I looked at 20 or so pictures, and uncontrollably, I just sat there and wept. It was bad that my mom died. I don't think I've cried that uncontrollably since she died. Or maybe, even backing up a little further, since the doctors called us up to the hospital and said, you need to come up to the hospital because it's now the end. And I can remember being up there with Molly and just weeping uncontrollably like I never had in my whole life and I couldn't even, I couldn't control myself. Suffering and death are horrific. They are bad. And then let's think about Jesus. Jesus is the one who dies, but He's the one who the Father says of Him from heaven, this is my my Son. He's my Son. And then the Father says, in whom I am, what? I am well pleased. So he's not only his son, but he's his son in whom he's well pleased. And what's so interesting there in that context, he's well pleased with his son because his son just was baptized by John as the Jewish people were called to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is the obedient son. The perfectly obedient son. And the father is perfectly pleased with his son Back to my former statement. Christ died. First and foremost, we've got to say, this is terrible. This is awful. Of all people, this is, this is the worst that it would happen to Him. Next statement. Good or bad? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died. That's terrible. But because of the intent, because of the the purpose, 
because of where it fits in things, because of God's plan of redemption that we learn about in chapter 17 and chapter 18, this is good news to us. He comes to, to do something for us. He comes to die for our sins, to provide perfect atonement so that we could be forgiven. I, of all people, think that's good news. It's great. It's wonderful. 1 Corinthians 15, which I was quoting uh, in a separate manner for effect, says this, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died. That's terrible. We're going to focus on that this morning. For our sins. That's wonderful in accordance with the Scriptures. That's wonderful as well, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is wonderful because we know the intent, the design. We know the interpretation of it, if you will, because Jesus told us and because the Bible tells us. John 19 is our text. So if you have a Bible, you can look at the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, the Gospel of Jesus. It's good news because of what happens, what's intended. But, but I, wanna inv- I want to invite you this morning to, to experience uneasiness. I mean, this is part of how Christianity is, is peculiar. It's odd. It is rather odd we walk in today and there's a cross in the front. We expect there to be a cross in the front because this is a Christian church. And the cross symbolizes our religion. And what a strange thing that is. And I invite you this morning to, re- to remember it is a strange thing. The strangeness is cleared up because of the intent. But let's not think somehow it's good that Jesus suffered and good that Jesus died because actually it's the worst thing imaginable because of all, all people, it shouldn't have been true of Him. But because He loves us, because He does what He does for us, it's good news to us, right? But let's feel some of that awkwardness lest we read and have a happy face when we see the suffering and the brutal beating of Jesus and then leading to His crucifixion. Fair? See what I'm trying to do to get us ready? Okay. 19th chapter of Gospel according to John. We're just going to work our way through it. We won't make it all the way through, um, but we'll at least go as far as we can this morning, learning about our great Savior, doing what He's doing here voluntarily because He loves us. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate, the Roman prefect under Rome's authority has been given a job to do with the Jewish people to keep the peace, to try to have local laws upheld. And here Jesus is mocked and beaten. It's bad, but it's not going to be as bad as it's going to get. This is the initial flogging of a lesser kind. They had three different kinds. This is sort of the... the, 
slap on the wrist. I hate to make light of it, but it's, it's to teach a lesson. It's a warning shot, if you will. In part to appease the Jews, in part perhaps to mock the Jews, to get them to stop barking. If it seems like a circus, uh, historians would say this looks a lot like what circuses would have looked like in the Roman world. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, that would be the Jewish leaders who represent the nation, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Speaking better than he knows, right? Verse 5, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Again, we, we have to make some guesstimates here. It can be a, a, a mocking gesture toward Jesus. Here is the man. It can be a mocking gesture toward the Jews. Here he is. Some threat he seems to be. Who do you people think you are? What's your problem bothering me? With his crown of thorns, dressed in purple. Oh, some royal king he is. Here he is. Here's the man. Verse 6 says, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And how, how do you respond to this? Pilate represent, presents this man who was seemingly weak. Here's the man. No threat. No insurrectionist. Harmless. We know there's more behind the scenes, but right? You get the idea? And their response, their sinister response, maybe because they're more well aware of the things he's been doing and he's not just some kind of religious leader who's got a pretty good following and some serious disciples. Objective healings, verifiable, objective teaching like no one else has taught. The Jews actually know he is, he is a threat to them at least. And so, yeah, he might look the way he looks because of what they've just done at the Roman circus, but given that he is a threat and given their hearts, we have their response. By the way, their hearts, John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light, light because their works were evil. And so they, the ones whose works are evil with darkened hearts, have Jesus and they say regarding Jesus, crucify Him. Don't just kill Him. Crucify Him with the most torturous, heinous way known to them. This is, this is so strange and weird and bad and unsettling 
John 3 helps us at least to see that this, this for sure, this is a spiritual matter. The reason they would say what they say. In ancient times, I'll just read a good excerpt that I think summarizes it without belaboring it too much. It is interesting that John doesn't give us a lot of details. There are other details we have in other gospel accounts, but John doesn't give us a lot of details. In ancient times, crucifixion was synonymous with horror and shame, a death inflicted on slaves, bandits, prisoners of war, and revolutionaries. Cicero calls it, quote, that cruel and disgusting penalty. Those crucified were made a public spectacle for hours, if not days. The victim would hang in the heat of the sun, stripped naked and struggling to breathe in order to avoid asphyxiation. He had to push himself up with his legs and pull with his arms, triggering muscle spasms that caused almost unimaginable pain. The end would come through heart failure, brain damage caused by reduced oxygen supply, suffocation, or shock. Atrocious physical agony, length of torment, and public shame combined combined to make crucifixion a most horrible form of death. Perfect, innocent, before men and women, boys and girls, only ever did the right thing. Perfect control. Even Pilate says, I find no guilt with him. And the leaders of the nation representing the people say, crucify him. Let's keep going in verse 6. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He says it again, right? He keeps saying better than he knows. And what I mean by that, by the way, most of you know, but what I mean by that is there is no guilt with him. It's actually true in, in an ultimate sense. He's the sinless Savior, the, the just, who will die for the unjust. The Bible says so that he would bring us to God. But isn't it interesting that Pilate says to the Jews and their complicated, conflicting kind of relationship, tolerating one another, you crucify him. Knowing full well that the Jews don't crucify people. Death for blasphemy by stoning, yes. If you want him crucified, you do it yourself. You who don't do that sort of thing. Why are you trying to get me to do something to someone who doesn't deserve to have it done to them? You want that? You do it. I have to confess to you, I don't know how to preach this passage. 
Some of you might be thinking, I can tell. Extremely awkward, and I'm of the conviction if we're not awkward regarding it, something probably isn't right. But I do know that he does everything that he does voluntarily. He's giving himself up for us. And I do know that he's doing what he does out of devotion to his Father and their eternal plan that we read about in chapter 17. And I do know that he's doing what he's doing here because he's going to lay his life down for his sheep so that he would lose none of them. We learned about that in chapter 10. And I do know that he's doing what he does in light of chapter 3 because he loves his sheep. Verse 7 says, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Leviticus 24, 16. Blasphemy leads to stoning. I don't want to get too hung up on this, but even that's kind of interesting to think about because Actually, in the Old Testament, there are multiple sons of God. Because if you are a Messiah, an anointed king, you can have the title a son. So it's not necessarily blasphemous. There are many messiahs. David was a messiah, okay? An anointed one. A Christ. Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament. Messiah, anointed one. It's what's true of a king. But they know full well Jesus has been claiming to be the Son. Before Abraham was, I am Son. And if he's lying, he does deserve to be killed via Jewish law, but they're asking for something else. The whole thing is so upside down and backward, it's amazing. They're not being truthful. Verse 8 says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Sometimes people think it's because he's superstitious. Perhaps. Why is he afraid that they're saying he's, he's claimed to be the Son of God? Well, or it's, it's because of this, this awkward, fine line kind of relationship that he did have with the Jewish people. So he, as the Roman prefect, is over them, And yet he's got to have a good working relationship with them because what you don't want is an insurrection. And Caesar's not going to be happy with that back in the homeland of Rome, if you will. So you've got to keep the peace with the people. And sometimes that ends up being a fine line on how to do that and how heavy-handed can you be. From what we do know historically, he had been pretty heavy-handed in the past. But maybe not so heavy-handed more recently, given that his mentor had been killed just a couple of years before this because of his failings. I bring out some of that because it's this, this kind of fine line, awkward, you'd think he would just tell the people this is how it's going to be and that's how it's going to be, but there's this compromising, there's this working together with the Jewish people. He's responsible to be able to do that. 
alias Sejanus. Might not be pronouncing it correctly, but he won't care. Just two years earlier, executed for his failings. Verse 9 says, let's keep going. He entered his headquarters. This is Pilate. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Remember, they just said, he claims to be the son of God. He deserves to die. Now, So now Pilate goes back in to talk to Jesus. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. I wrote in my margin, chapter 18, verse 38, Jesus is from out of this world. He came into this world. I was born into this world to be king. That's where I'm from. But he's already talked about that. So now the Isaiah 53 lamb is silent. Verse 10 says, So Pilate, I wrote in my margin, not that it's inspired, but you get the flavor from it. So Pilate, now irritated, or more irritated, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority? I just had to kind of let that settle in for a second. Do you not know that I have authority? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And I say to you, let that sink in a little bit. I don't know if Jesus said it like I just said it. Probably not. I don't know if it was soft and hushed. I don't know if it was bold and, 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 and elevated in tone. No doubt it was bold, however it was. Authority? I'm in charge here. This makes me think of Matthew's account of something that happened just before this with Peter trying to chop the guy's head off, right? Gets his ear. Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He's just said that to Peter. It's reverbing in my ears. Big man Pilate. Big I have authority man Pilate. Only authority that's been given to you, and there's a greater plan and there's a greater purpose, you're not in charge here. Verse 11 goes on to say, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Could be referring to Judas. Could be referring to Caiaphas, representing the Jewish leaders. Both would be true. I lean toward the latter. Verse 12 says, From then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Did the Jews believe that? Not, not purely. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. I mean, just remember, spin is nothing new. 
And politicking is nothing new when you're trying to get something or protect something or hide something or gain something. It may have even been the case in the intent here because it is used in extra-biblical writing. Caesar's friend is like a moniker, is like a title, it's like a, a way of showing your loyalty. We are of that kind of mindset. We're Caesar's friend. And if you're not Caesar's friend, you die. And if you don't do what we're telling you you need to do, you're not Caesar's friend. And you know what happens to people who aren't in the category of Caesar's friend. But the Jews, you, you, you all know this. We know that they know this. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. These are the Jews who long for a king, who, who await the ultimate Messiah. They're the ones that got, they, they have the Bible verses memorized. Reciting them, knowing them, backward, forward, inside and outside. Longing for ultimate deliverance, right? A savior king, a deliverer king who would free them from the bondage of all kinds, but certainly here, even the bondage of Rome. So they don't mean what they, 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 they don't mean what they even say, but they're politicking. Verse 13 says, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Just think pronouncement. Now we're going to be official. Now we're going to make the official pronouncement. He's going to sit on the judgment throne, if you will. 14 says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, cuttingly, Behold, your king. John chapter 1 verse 49 calls Jesus king of Israel. He is the king of Israel. Now we've got Pilate mockingly, deridingly, Behold, your king. 15 says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Is that true? It's not true. But, but because of our sinful hearts, and yes, I'm going to say ours, when we want something, we will do everything and anything, including deny and defy the most basic tenets of our religion to get it. And that's the state they're in. They're so loyal to Caesar. I remind you that the Jewish revolt comes in 66. And it didn't happen overnight. And depending on how you date the gospel according to John, a lot of scholars, conservative scholars even, will date this after 70 AD. With the Jewish revolt and then the Roman destruction of the temple because the Jews rebelled against the Roman government. And here they are saying, we have no king but Caesar. 
We're such loyal subjects to us Jews. No way. No way, Jose. No way, Hosea. They just hate Jesus. They're a sham. They're liars. They're deceivers. They, 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 they don't even believe no king but Caesar. In fact, they're not even supposed to believe no king but Caesar because ultimately it's God is our one and only true king. He is the one. But they're not even willing to say things like that. Remember, if you have Caesar as king in this world, you worship Caesar. That's why they had such trouble with the money, with Caesar's image on it. And we have a false image. Some of you have been to Caesarea, right? Caesarea, dedicated to Caesar. And you've even seen, you've seen, you've seen an altar to Caesar where they would do sacrifices to Caesar because it's Caesar worship. You worship the king. We have no king but Caesar. Well, you just denied your religion at its most basic core level. You've done that. It's amazing what we do. It is amazing what we do. If I could just jump ahead... It's amazing that Jesus is going to die to bring forgiveness for people who do such things. Verse 16 says, So He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And this is where, if we were looking at all the gospel details, this is where the... the, the ultimate flogging takes place. The brutalization, the beating that sometimes led to people's death where they, they couldn't, they, they died before they got to the cross. So with the slap on the wrist, sorry to make light of it, earlier happens. And here, reading in between the lines in light of the other gospel accounts is where the brutalization takes place. Seventeen says, And he went out bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Then eighteen. Those four words in eighteen. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one either one on either side, and Jesus between them. There they crucified Him. I can't resist at least reminding you it was there they crucified Him. Having suffered under Pontius Pilate, as the Creed says, then there they crucified Him. I'm drawing that out because sometimes people speak as if, well, even if Christianity weren't a historic religion and even if these things were found out to not actually be historically true, it still is very, very valuable. And I would still believe it. And I would suggest to you that that's not how the Bible's written, that's not how Christians think, that's not how Christians talk. And if it didn't really happen that He was 
There they crucified Him. You shouldn't be a Christian. Real time. Real space. Outside of the city walls then. There they crucified Him. And I like to also mention having suffered under Pontius Pilate. So interesting. People, we, we don't recite the Apostles' Creed on a weekly basis here at Omaha Bible Church. I would affirm the Apostles' Creed. I think you need to affirm the Apostles' Creed. What it expresses is true and right in historic Christianity. Uh, we need, there's more to be said than the Apostles' Creed. But I do think it's significant that Christians have affirmed that for a long time. The Bible's more important, don't get me wrong, but they have affirmed and agreed Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And in one sense, I think to myself, that's really strange and weird. Why would we put the bad guy's name in what we say? Why would we put the bad guy's name in what we affirm? He was a real piece of work. And that would all be true. We've been learning a little bit about that this morning, but I want to remind you and commend this way of thinking to you. He was a real piece of work. Historic. Real. Because if Christianity is not based upon real life history, then it is worthless. The same way of thinking happens with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, even though he's talking about the resurrection. Because even in the first century, there were people who were saying, well, we don't actually believe in the bodily resurrection, but Christianity is good for the culture, kind of thing. No, the Apostle Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. And I like to remind you sometimes, one reason why that's so important, amidst all of these religions that happen in people's imagination, that aren't historic and are not tied to actual places, It's important to you and it should be important to you because you are real. And and you need a real Savior. One who will go to Calvary's cross and be crucified there in that place if He's going to do that in your place and if He's going to be raised from the dead for you because you're a real person who needs resurrection. There they crucified Him. And verse 18 goes on to say, And with Him two others... Oh, we already read that, didn't we? 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, common for locals, in Latin... Roman occupation, makes sense to do that. And in Greek, international language, 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it and see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. 
Psalm 22, verse 18, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Again, notice the real people. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, likely John, who writes this account, who doesn't name himself, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Taking care of his mother, loyal son. 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And I guess we should expect nothing less. The one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and he's making sure his mother's needs are met. Apparently Joseph is gone. Apparently he's dead. Brothers are unbelievers at this point in time. Behold your mother. Behold your son. I want to end with just having you listen to what Jesus said earlier. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. It's in chapter 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, to His disciples, His believers, in light of what He's going to do, you will weep and you will lament. Christ died bad for our sins. Great. Great. He goes on to say in John 16, 20, having said you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He's going to be raised from the dead. There's going to be joy unspeakable because He dies for their sins, dies for your sins, if you're going to believe in Him, and then He's going to be raised from the dead, raised not for Himself merely, but raised for us. The Apostle Paul says, raised for our justification because He's justified in His resurrection, and in that resurrection we, we have joy. So this morning, it makes sense that we would feel terrible, that we would feel bad even though we know how it ends because we're rehearsing and rethinking how how all this happened, what it was about, and it was horrific. And yet we read it with a view toward what Jesus talked about. This is joy. This is joy that can't be taken away from you because if Christ died for your sins and was raised for your justification, it's absolutely sure and certain that you're not only accepted by God now, you always will be accepted by God and it's irreversible. And so we rejoice in this. Let's be done for this morning. Father, thank you so much for for Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you for Jesus, who is our resurrection, who is our life. Jesus is the one who is the one and only unique mediator that all other mediators before him pointed toward. Thank you that here at this Passover, Jesus is the Passover lamb, as we read in 1 Corinthians that it was His blood that was shed for us so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be reconciled to You. 
Lord, I pray for the men and women and the boys and girls who are here this morning that they would not be trusting in themselves, but they would be trusting in Jesus. For those who never have, that they would, that you would graciously grant repentance, you would graciously grant faith, that we might have the shared experience of common joy that comes from having everlasting life in Christ. Thank you that in Christ you're not against us, but you're for us. Thank you for new life in Him. Thank you that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. That it might be our joy as well. In Jesus' name, amen.